Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Markson Podcast. My name is Mark Jarrett, and today I'm joined by a very unique person who, I mean, does pretty much everything under the sun. My guest today is Andrew Donovan, and today we are going to be talking about a variety of number of things, uh, his writing, um, his particular hobbies, and views, and most recently he uh, has adopted a carnivore diet, which I've been meaning to pick his brain about. So first of all, Andrew, Donovan, welcome to the show. Hey buddy, thanks for having me. I'm cool. excited. Cool, man. So uh, yeah, you've done a fair amount of uh, different things. I've read some of your stuff and uh, I haven't read some of your stuff in a while, but m- most recently I've read most of your material on masculinity in the modern world and how men don't really know if they have a place or where their place is. Do you think that's starting to become a, a growing issue? And how is that usually, how do you think should, it should be addressed? There's a lot in that question. There's a lot in there, yeah. We can um, slow it down, yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I would say that my, my writing career has been a little bit, like my career in general, has been a bit schizophrenic at times and topics come and go. But what I've noticed has stuck around um, ever since I was probably in my late teens was this, these questions that I kept having regarding masculinity yeah. and what, what does that mean? And I always felt that there was never a definition anymore, nor were there any rites of passage. People say that, you know, it's when you, when you get your car, well, okay, not everyone gets a car anymore. Mm. You know, at what point do you become a man? And so I started reading and the first book that I ever read um, I can't remember who recommended it to me or, or why I read it. That really had me resonate with this idea that there is something to masculinity that transcends the culture and the time that we're in was Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. And when I read that, that changed everything. It was like a philosophy that was written so many hundreds, thousands of years ago. And I still felt like there was a lot that I can, for lack of a better term, unpack from what Marcus Aurelius was writing you know, in those times and try and apply it to my own life. And that, that kind of snowballed into reading a whole bunch of characters. Um, I really fell in love with the writings of uh, Jack Donovan, uh, not just because he has the same last name as me, <laughs> yeah. but because he's written some, some quintessential books on masculinity, wildly controversial. But in my opinion, they're, they're quintessential. And it's just one of those things that I want to continue to explore for a myriad of reasons, but mostly because I know when I was a teenager and you know, even now at 28 years old, I don't know that people in the West have any clue of what it means to be a man. And that definition seems to always be changing. Some people want it to change. Some people are forcing it to change. And so my writing has tried to, at least to some extent, explore those ideas. What do you think your own definition of a man is? I struggle with this because I've had people ask me if they, you know, why don't you write like a, a book or a, a playbook, so to speak, for young men to, to reference, to help them through life? Because I keep, you know, I hear from, from friends who have brothers that are young or family members who, who have cousins and stuff like that who are young and they're, they're going through these weird transitionary periods. And I, and I keep saying, I don't think I'm ready yet. Right. You know, I, I don't want to market myself as like an internet guru. Um, who, who has all these answers because I don't and and like I said my, my life and my writings have been quite schizophrenic and I need them to I need things to kind of level off mm. and I don't know that I'm I'm done exploring the philosophy yet yeah. to have a concrete definition but there's a few 
um, underpinnings, I would say, that encapsulate part of, of what it means to be a band. And I think there are things that, like honor. Honor is a uniquely masculine trait, in my opinion. And I think that it's, I, I know it's uniquely masculine because women have a hard time understanding it. <laughs> okay. Um, and right. and that, that in itself might be a very contentious statement. Mm. But uh, I believe it to be true because when a man's honor is, is attacked, he can do very irrational things. And they're irrational in, in often a, a violent sense or a self-destructive sense. And so the, the exploration of honor and how to preserve it or how to gain it back has been something that's, that's really interested me. I think there's also a sense of duty. So honor and duty kind of go hand in hand uh, because if you have a duty to something or someone, you want to carry yourself honorably in, in that duty. So what do those two things mean uh, as parallels? You know, that's something that I like to explore as well. Also, I don't know how to phrase this as like a virtue, but certainly family and being a provider maybe is the way that it would have been described before. But I think it has to be more all, more encompassing than just being a provider because certainly there are many men out there that provide very good lives for their families and they're non-existent in those families. Sure, yeah. So it has to be more encompassing than just being a provider. And, and again, you, that's where the duty and honor comes back, right, to, to the people that you love and that you live with. I think the masculinity has, to, to really embody the full, the full masculine, I think there has to be an acceptance that life is violence and violence is beautiful also. And that's something that I learned from, from Jack Donovan. And Jordan Peterson, actually, another one of the guys that I read about, he said a lot of good things on masculinity. I'm looking at 12 Rules for Life. It's sitting right in front of us. I was just about to ask you that. I was just right about now. to say how much has that uh, changed your opinion? It's, it's, it's been big. And, and, and he, he talks about the, the, something that separates men from women is that with men, there's always an underlying sense that violence could be used. Mm-hmm. And when a man encounters a woman who may be acting irrational, he doesn't know what to do with that. Yeah, I've heard him say that. Yeah. Right, and and in in the current, um, some people argue that in the current age we're in, we're in a budding matriarchy, and men aren't sure how to deal with with the obstacles that are presented to them because normally, where violence would take place, we're we're now moving into an age and a time where it seems like wars are happening less on a grand scale. Yeah. And sure, that can change tomorrow, but in the current state that we're in, wars are happening less, less people are dying for more. So this idea that you can just use violence to solve things, to many people seems archaic in the modern age, but I don't think it's necessarily so. I, I just think that violence and the way that we interpret it is changing, but it's still a necessity. And I'm talking, I'm not talking about going out there and establishing yourself through force as somebody with more of a libertarian mindset on how to live one's life obviously the the force principle is something that i would never want to enact on on humanity but a man has to always have the ability to use it if necessary and that kind of goes back into that being a provider provider is also protects i was about to say yeah yeah, yeah. They, they again that's why that word isn't enough to describe what being a man is what the masculine means so so violence is necessary violence is necessary in your food mm-hmm. okay yeah and and it's just owning up to that that that's important for me and i don't it doesn't even matter if this whole carnivore thing that we'll, we'll likely get into sure uh you know a huge thing from vegans and, and one reason why i used to be vegan is because the violence aspect and that was kind of counterintuitive because I'm a hunter, but I, I was, you know, this whole factory farming thing and blah, blah, blah. And it, it I felt like that was an injustice. But uh, at some point you have to realize that whether you're farming cucumbers 
or you're raising cattle, uh, there's a lot of harm that's being done to the animal. Like you drive through anywhere in Ontario right now and we're almost in harvest season. You're going to see these huge combines coming out and they're going to be ripping up the ground. Why do you think you see turkey vultures flying through the air when a field's cut down? It's because there's hundreds of mice, rabbits, deer fawns that are slaughtered by these machines. Yeah. And can we do better to alleviate the pain and suffering of, of animals and e each other? Humans, absolutely. But recognizing that a certain part of life and particularly masculinity involves violence or the, the how should I phrase this? One must have the ability to use it if necessary, I think is important in exploring that. And the way that, that society is currently structured in the mainstream anyways, and I'm, and I'm talking about in the media, I'm talking about in culture, through say Hollywood or music, and even in the classrooms, or maybe especially in the classrooms, there's been this push to get rid of that aspect of boys and men. And I think, no, I don't think, I'm certain that it's to our own detriment uh, to do that. It's, it's suppressing a biological that a lot of people aren't comfortable with addressing, but is just because you're uncomfortable with addressing it doesn't mean it's still, it's not there. It's, uh, it's one of that f those fine lines I find between like regulation and allowing things to be the way they are because I mean there's some things that are inevitably not okay when it comes to violence like assaulting people randomly on the street or anything but as you said the use of protecting. Yeah, well I, I can touch on that even a little bit more because I train people to fight to okay. kickbox. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you'd be amazed that the men kind of come in there knowing that this is something especially the young men come in there knowing that this is something that they want to refine and be able to do competently but you hear the women saying the same thing mm. that maybe they work in a male dominated environment maybe they were assaulted who knows right sure. but they come in there with this idea that should violence break out which to a certain degree they're expecting some of them that violence is going to break out i want to be competent mm. and and so yes does it does is violence uniquely masculine no but should we be prepared because and this is another thing about masculinity Every every male has has a masculine and the feminine. Every female has the masculine and the feminine as well. Yeah. Men just tend to obviously exude the masculine more than the feminine, and vice versa. But it's not that each sex has to be independent uh, when it comes to say you know violence or nurturing. Yeah. Right. Uh, there is crossover there, and so people people do whether they want to admit it or not appreciate that violence is a part of life. Some people are just willing to own up to it and say, okay, fair enough. Uh, how do I become competent? How do I become uh, useful if something were to happen? How do I protect myself and the people that I love should something happen to me? Or how do I provide through violence? It's a big Venn diagram for sure. Oh yeah, it's huge. And that's why, and this is exactly why, uh, you know, it sounds like a cop-out, but I, I haven't settled in on a, on a definition quite yet yeah. because I have to consider all these things before I, I put something out there. And when I put something out there, I want it to be responsible and uh, I want it to be lasting. So I don't want sure. it to be something that's just a, a, a product of the times that we're in. And then in 15 years, it'll be irrelevant. It, this has to be an ideology or an archetype that, that survives uh, time. So that's what I'm trying to, to settle in on. Right. For your, when you train guys, do you, um, do you train them with sparring or is it just bags and drills and stuff like that? In, in this particular setting, it's just bags and okay. drills. But we, we do stuff off the books that are right. a little bit more in, intense. Yeah, sure. Practical. Okay. Yeah. All right.
In a weird segue, uh, I remember you ran for the mayor of Guelph. This was probably like, what, two years ago? Four, 2014. Well, that time really does go by. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was your experience learning about politics and democracy on the municipal level when you uh, did that? Um, it... Okay, well, why, why did I run? Right, because that might set up the, re the rest of this question. I, I ran because I, I spent a lot of money on a political science undergrad. Okay. That I had no idea how it was going to manifest into anything in my life. And <clears throat> I didn't want to, for lack of a better word, waste all that money that I spent. So it happened to be municipal election that year. And I figured, you know, what the hell? Let's, let's throw this thing together. I found a couple of guys that want to help me volunteer. Yeah. My girlfriend, who's now my fiance, thought I was crazy at the time. Because <laughs> we were very early on in our relationship, and I just did it, yeah. you know, to to kind of get a first hand look. Because here I was studying politics and 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 proselytizing my views on how things should be run in the Middle East and uh, you know how how local bylaws should be structured and and all that crap. But really, what did I know? You right. know, so I want to put my feet into the fire and um, at least once in my life take this thing that I've been studying for four years and apply it practically into this this campaign because I sure as heck wasn't going to go to law school yeah, yeah. with my political science degree. Okay. I didn't care that much about school to be good at it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, politics has always been something that I've, I've had a keen interest in. So I ran and I put together this campaign and I learned that municipal politics can be just as dirty as the federal politics. It was okay. a very dirty campaign really? that was run here in Guelph. Yes, there was a lot of animosity <laughs> because there was a public transit strike okay. that we were just coming off. There was a massive boondoggle at City Hall with a bunch of contracts that a, a company didn't fulfill and we were paying all this insane amount of money to that we're, we're still continuing to pay for these mistakes that were made from the, the last administration. And so it got heated at times. And I brought, like I said, a little bit more of a libertarian idea to it. And uh, I just thought that that was a necessity, a necessary conversation to have and, and to be that voice of opposition almost. I had no intention of winning, but I just, again, wanted to see how, how the process took place and, and how these people acted. And, and it was it was interesting when the, when the cameras are on you, how people... I wouldn't say change, but how they put on their, they put on their face, yeah, you know, put on the face, yeah. yeah. And, um, really, really bizarre things. Like you, you think that when, uh, and I'm sure a lot of politicians do, I'm sure they're trained, especially if they're seasoned. But one thing that really bugged me was I was sitting beside one nameless candidate. Okay. Very prominent candidate. Sure. And they were asked a question at the university of Guelph and this candidate was nodding their head in agreement. <laughs> and uh, jotting down notes on a piece of paper, making it seem as though they were listening very intently. So I, I said to myself in my head, I was like, I wonder what they're writing on that sheet of paper. So I looked over and sure enough, it's the letter M over and over and over again as they nod their head in agreement. Really? Writing zilch. Nothing. Zilch. And it, at that moment, it was kind of like everything became real about, you know, I, w I don't want to... Uh, that's not corruption, yeah. but just the sliminess of politics and how things are a face and how they've been trained to have certain mannerisms and ticks about them that look good on camera and look good in front of the public. Yet it's just all of it's a smoke and mirrors type yeah. of thing. And and that was very it was very eye opening to me. And the way that the media handled it as well, some of the interviews that I was whisked in and out of was was very eye opening to see how all this stuff was was put together and I have been asked to do it again 
Really? Uh, at, at the council level, okay. by certain figures in the in in the in the city, I need to settle down a little bit and get my life figured out before I make that run again because I don't think it looks very good to go 0 and 2 in a, in a, a city election. Yeah. So maybe down the road I'll, I'll put my 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 gloves back on and get back in the ring, but but for now it's it's something that I just observe. Right on. Yeah, I remember a couple of those banners being around of uh, of yours. Were you running for like was it independent or lib- libertarian that you were running? Municipal elections are there's no party affiliation? Really? Yeah. People make their people make make no qualms okay. about who they're supporting. I didn't know that. Yeah, but that's why you'll see very obscure colors like purple, you know, okay. uh, on people's signs or or yellow. Right. Like it doesn't. Um, they don't mean anything. Yeah. You know. Um. So so no, they're they're lines were clearly drawn, in, in, particularly in in that election, but but no one represented a party. Okay. Yeah. I don't know why I thought that was the case. Anyways, a lot of a lot of people that do municipal politics it's a stepping stone into a party and and you know people are approached to run for things like council and school board trustee because they have certain political leanings Mm -hmm. uh which favor you know say unions or bureaucracy or things like that but no no one's officially represented by a party Mm -hmm. yeah was there anything that you liked in the process were you thinking to yourself thank god we have this sort of a system otherwise if we were in another system in a in a like another that another country has it would be this could be disastrous or not i'm constantly disillusioned by democracy but i i was very thankful that i got the opportunity to speak to as many people as i did and what was so interesting about it and uh, maybe this is part of the disillusionment but what was so interesting about it was so many people agreed with what i was saying so many people and the media would never admit to it nor did they but the conversations that were happening at the base level at the grassroots that because I went to all the events, you know, I was out in the parks by myself handing out flyers. I was talking to people on the ground and I was getting the messages on Facebook in this primitive caveman campaign that I I, I threw together with yeah. the pennies I had, you know, I was talking to thousands of people and I couldn't believe how many people were disillusioned with the way things are being run, not just on the city level, but provincially, uh, federally. And, and now when um, media personalities, when they start to question or wonder, what the heck is this populism thing going on? Why is this happening? We can't, we can't possibly put our fingers on what would possibly get the, the, the electorate so disgruntled. If these are the questions that you're asking post-Brexit, post-Trump, post-Italy, post-Doug Ford, you haven't been paying attention, sure. nor, nor have you been talking. Although with Italy, it's always been populist. But. Uh, Italy has always had a very strong. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You're, you're very right about that. Yeah. Being half Italian, I can tell you that's for sure. But um, yeah, yes, with a name like Donovan. Well, it's the, yeah. Oh, you're that's Irish that. Italian. Irish Italian. Okay. Yeah, it's all the the mob. It's just yeah, got both sides covered. Walking that way. organized crime. Yes, right? yes. That's why I want to get into politics, right? Go clean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As if that's clean. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I imagine that that would have been definitely pretty eye-opening to some degree. I do, like, I mean, especially if it's on a bigger scale too. If it's, um, I mean, if you were to even move up in provincial or federal, like, it must just be ridiculous. Yeah, and I've got had the opportunity to speak to people at, at that level, and um, yeah, we're in an age of chaos. Yeah, you know. Do you think some people have been talking about, you know, as you're mentioning certain 
populist sort of leaders getting into power. Do you think that, and some people also who voted for those leaders are not happy that they voted for them. Do you think there should be some requirement for people to be allowed to vote or no? I've always been thinking about this and I asked this on my last episode too. Oh, oh, for a requirement allowing people to vote. Yeah, like to know if they know what they're voting on. I don't know how you would ever run such a sort of test, but... Yeah. Because you um, said there was a big disillusionment, right? So. No, I, I don't think that. Um, it's discrimi- discriminatory inherently. But I think, I think the, the, the issue is we're not... What do they call it? An absolute democracy? We're a constitutional democracy, yeah. right? The constitution has to be upheld. There's no other, nothing else to say. Property right. rights have to be respected. Mm-hmm. Freedoms have to be upheld, and there's no leniency on that whatsoever. And if we're able to stay within those parameters, it cannot be abused. Okay. That's why I respect the American system so much, right? Mm. Like, like republicanism. Yeah. Because it, there's a constitution there. Each state is independent of one another, but there's some loose union, okay? And the constitution is not supposed to be infringed upon under mm. any circumstances. doesn't matter what your debate is mm. because it's a slippery slope. People say it's a fallacy. I, I say that it keeps playing out over and over again. But if you have those those parameters in place, you can't have tyrant voters or populist uprisings or socialist uprisings take place unless it's written within the parameters of that constitution to be a socialist republic or you know uh, uh, whatever you want to call it. But should we have a well-structured constitution, which I think we do, and we respect property rights and individual freedom, you couldn't possibly vote on anything that would infringe on that. But we've done away with the with those principles, with basic property right principles, with basic personal liberties, and we've allowed them to be uh, obfuscated by their enemies and uh, taken advantage of. So now you can get movements that swoop in, whether it be on the left or the right, and 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 use that to their advantage because we didn't just uphold the original uh, codes of conduct that we had put in place. So uh, for that reason, I would I'd still say no. We don't need to limit who votes. We just need to make sure that the uh, the founding papers are respected, and we should be okay. Well, like yeah, Canadian constitution is a little less rigid than the American yeah. ones, like with conventions and everything like that. But yeah, yeah. On another segue, you are uh, you're into cigars. Yeah, big time. Yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah what what uh, sparked that hobby on? Yeah, literally, eh? Yeah, um, that was a pun, by the way. <laughs> cigars came again. I think from. A very, I'm very contemplative, right? Okay. And <laughs> I grew up uh, half Italian. Yeah. That was a big part of that culture. Sure. And I always remember my uncle, and my grandparents smoking these cigars and these pipes yeah. growing up and uh, indoors before that was taboo. And um, that's something that resonated. And I always consider it to be like wise, you mm. know, these wise people smoking these cigars and talking about the way the world works and, and whatnot. And then I found, and I started reading more about cigars and, and their origins. And I, as you know, I managed a cigar shop for a little while and I got to talk to some of the people in there. It's kind of like, um, it's two things, okay? It's meditative, which is what I use it for mostly. Mm. So I just sit on my front porch with nothing, okay? Well, glass of scotch. <laughs> and I, I have this cigar and the scotch. I just Are stick. you from the 1940s? 
I, I like traditionalism, man. Yeah. I'm all about it. So, sure. um, I, I sit on my front porch and I just, uh, if I was, I, if I was allowed to sit there with a shotgun, I would. <laughs> and I just, I, I watch the world go by and I yeah. just reflect on things. And then the other, I would say 40% of the time that I smoke cigars, it's a networking experience. It's, we share in ideas and in conversations with friends and with strangers. And it's still one of the few things that is almost entirely male dominated. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Does that tie into the... Hugely aspect of masculinity Ma- right? mass massively yeah. um and and i know that a lot of cultures particularly in canada the native cultures use that as kind of a ceremonial thing the tobacco right and that's where the europeans got it from originally was from the natives and and so it's always had some type of a ceremony in cultures around the world this idea of smoking and and i just fell in love with it the whole the whole masculine revival thing that sitting down with other men and discussing things or being contemplative and 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 meditating on on life and the situations that you're in and 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 how you're going to tackle them there's something just about that that smoke coming in and out and just whisking away that's very uh therapeutic therapeutic uh, that's a good word for it and and so I, I I got involved in that and and because I was in the industry and talking with these people and networking so much, um, I realized that this is still and and men do appreciate it as a bastion of manhood masculinity uh, that they can retreat to after you know a long day of work or maybe after a round of golf. It's a continuation of a business deal and you celebrate. It's a celebratory thing in, in Western culture too, where you have a, so many people would come to the cigar shop and celebrate um, a newborn. With that and say my buddy just had his first kid i want to get him a cigar um or you know we're celebrating a wedding i want to i want to outfit all my groomsmen with cigars and i want to enjoy that with him there's something primal there that mm. I, I i think that people who appreciate cigars appreciate that aspect of it the, the primal like around a campfire type thing that cigars do and um and, and so exploring that just made me fall in love with it even more yeah, it's kind of weird how with uh, I find with cigars, like any leader, whether it's like from, you know, Fidel on the left or Winston Churchill on the right, like they all uh, they all kind of use cigars back in the day. Yeah, and I, I I couldn't. I'm sure there's somebody out there that can explain this better than I can, as with anything that I explain. But um, there is something binding about it, and it just feels like you're breaking bread over a uniquely masculine thing. And that's kind of special, especially in, in this day and age. Yeah. So what uh, what attracts you to a degree of traditionalism, whether it's like cigar smoking or uh, like the American Constitution, republicanism? I would say that I, I definitely grew up in a more conservative-minded family. And I really, I ran away from those ideals when I was a teenager. Like a lot of teenagers do. I think that's healthy. You know, the boy has to leave home. He has to go out on his own and explore Elephant Graveyard before he comes back to Pride Rock to realize how good it is, you know, to use a Disney uh, archetype there. All right. But uh, was that taken from Jordan Peterson, too? No, one? no, no. That okay. one, no. I don't think he's talked about Lion King. Okay. But, he uh, talks a lot about Disney. He likes Disney. Disney. He likes yeah. Disney and hates Frozen. But, <laughs> but I didn't know, no? Yeah, yeah. So, anyhow. Sorry, I forgot the original question. Oh, uh, just... What attracted you to degrees of traditionalism? Right, and right, right. So, so any, I get raised in this conservative family, right? Yeah. And you, you go away and, and you become what your dad isn't, um, okay. especially because I had a tumultuous relationship with him growing up. All right. 
And um, <clears throat> so I ran to the other side and I realized I grew up Catholic too. Of course, Irish, Irish, yeah. Irish, Italian. I don't like, think you had too many options. I, there was there. not a lot of options yeah. for me, and uh, I, I made fun of it relentlessly. I thought it was, I thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was stupid. Mm. I thought this idea of, you know, who who needs marriage? Who needs monogamy? You know, those things are what archaic cavemen ideas. These are, and the further I ran away from it, the more depressed I got, and then I got to a point where I actually was depressed. So I had a, my first anxiety attack, I think, when I was eighteen. Okay. And I was just um, this like anarchist punk that wanted to, you know, essentially dissolve governments and everyone should just free love, man. Like this is totally idealistic and, and such a stupid 1960s hippie view of the world. It made me wildly nihilistic and depressed. And um, so I, I sought help because the depression, the anxiety was becoming crippling mm. and I had really intrusive negative thoughts about my own life and, and my purpose. And so I started, I started to, to see somebody, uh, a psychiatrist, which for no, no reason, I chose to see a psychiatrist that was one, a woman. And I, I, cause you could go onto like these directories where they have, you could pick like which yeah. one you want to deal with. So you don't just, it's a pretty personal thing, right? So you want to make sure that you're aligning with somebody that you're going to get on with, you're going to be able to open up to. But for some reason, I picked a grandmother, and I was very drawn to to this woman's face, and she looked very comforting. And I go, you know, I go and I visit her a couple of times, and the sessions are, in, in my opinion, anyways, are extremely therapeutic. She didn't say anything; she just let me talk right. for hours on end, hours, hours, hours on end, and it went up and down like a roller coaster all over the place. And she was quite religious; she was a Christian, some denomination, and we spoke a little bit about that. And anyway. I started doing a lot of writing. And this is where I really started to fall in love with writing and, and trying to figure out what my place was in this world. Things got better and then I hit a new low. And it was at that point, on my birthday, I was 19, my grandmother on my dad's side got me this card for my birthday. And I couldn't remember what my gift was that year or it was irrelevant. It was what she wrote in the card. and. She spoke about this. She knew, she knew to some extent that I was going through a rough patch. So she writes inside the card, and this is something only a grandmother can do. And that's why I find it very interesting that I sought out a grandmother for help, and my grandmother my grandmother was the one that came to my rescue. Oh, okay. Very interesting to me. So she writes in this card that there's a clematis in her garden. She's an avid gardener. Okay. I think she won like these prizes in Toronto for like best garden in North Toronto or something. Insane, insane garden. Okay. okay. <laughs> Loved it. But anyways, her favorite plant was this clematis. Uh. And she spoke, it was very poetic in how she wrote. I wish I had it in front of me because I would love to read it. But uh, so in, in my garden, there grows this clematis and it has these beautiful purple leaves on it. And the only reason why I'm able to see those purple leaves is because the clematis climbs the arbor that it's, that that it grows beside and clematises need arbors to grow and she said sometimes in life you need the people around you to hang on to in order to grow and it was nothing more than that and it was much more poetic than I just made it out to be mm. but it was it was very profound mm. and it wasn't so therefore you can come to me if you ever need my help it was just it was left there yeah and it was it was very very much like her that sometimes in life like a clematis, you need things to hold on to. And every, everything changed. 
Everything changed in that moment. And it was like the most important thing to me going forward was family. Because I, 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 to this day, maintain that if I didn't have that experience, that things would have gone awry really quickly. It would have kept going bad. And my family brought me back into it. This thing that I kept trying to run away from kept reaching out and begging for me to come back. And I did. And that was huge. And slowly, I started to patch up all those relationships. And my dad was the big one. And it lingered for years. Yeah. And I would say now we're, we're very good friends. And and that's something also that, that, that young boys must go through. They must... They must leave their dad and they must combat him. They must combat the king. I think that's another archetype that runs through masculinity. Hmm. You must go head to head with the king and earn the throne. And and so I went head to head with him for most of my life, I would say. And finally, we've come to a peace resolution and we're very good friends now. And so that ignited this idea that maybe I was wrong about the way I thought about the world. That maybe family was important because I, I wasn't I wasn't healed. This wasn't a hallelujah, you're healed type of thing right? I want to continue exploring these patterns, these traditional patterns that seem to make me happy. So fam sure. family worked. I was in a very serious relationship at the time, not with, not, not with my current girlfriend, but with an ex-girlfriend. That made me really happy. Her family was very close-knit. That made me happy. Huh. Wonder what will happen if I could go to church? How will that make me feel? And then I've re I rediscovered the power of Christ. Mm. And, and that tr I don't say that as like a born-again Christian or anything like that. I just, I, I don't know how else to phrase that without it sounding hokey and American and I found Jesus and everything got, it wasn't that easy, you know, but there was something there in that traditional Catholic church with the hymns and with the, everyone, you know, dressed in their Sunday best and, and worship and family and babies and, and all of that wholesomeness that made me feel complete. And when I, every time I stray, I find family and God again, and every anxiety in my life seems to dissipate. Do you think, uh, what do you think, uh, like certain traditional aspects or uh, values, how much do you think it adapts to the modern world? How does a traditional I don't think idea it does. or value? Uh, I, don't, I don't think it does. It doesn't do it very well. Really? No. And, and, and But like, how does it, how do you think it addresses modern issues? I think it, it transcends modern issues. Like, so the other day I got into a discussion. I was invited over to somebody's house because it's very rarely that this person meets other people on the, say, the libertarian side of the spectrum. Now I say I'm libertarian with strings attached because I'm a Catholic, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm against abortion. So there's this woman that's there and she's, I was told she's very left wing, but she wants to hear this conversation, blah, blah, blah. So we start talking about these things and and she goes well you know i don't feel like i should be forced to pay for uh i never had a kid before so i don't feel like i should be forced to pay for schooling you know that's not something that i was like i can see your point and that i think a lot of libertarians would agree with you blah 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 and i said you know as a libertarian but also a catholic i i don't think i should be forced to to pay for let's say like contraceptives or any type of uh birth control and that was that was blasphemy okay to her right, right. And that, that got her, her feather. And I was perfectly willing to, to hear, you know, her opinions on it, but it didn't, it wasn't reciprocal, right? She was not willing to hear my opinions on it. It was just, my opinion was wrong, right? And it doesn't fit in with modern times. And what I really do, um, what really brought me back specifically to Catholicism 
was that this, to a certain extent, uh, was a tradition that wasn't going to bend to the whims of modernity. And I think we're going down a very dangerous path, path with modernity. And especially in, in, in what really drove me away from Protestantism was their total willingness without any foresight or uh, hindsight to just say, yep, we accept everything now and everyone. Like, I don't know if I want to be a part of a club that accepts anything and everyone. I think mm -hmm. there has to be standards put in place like there is with anything, anything. If your partner didn't brush their teeth, should you just look past that? That's okay. Mm. Their teeth are falling out of their mouth. You know, no big deal. You know, if they if they had if they had ideals, uh, philosophies that were totally uh, out of whack with yours, no big deal. Love them anyways. It's like no, there needs to be some parameters put on what is right and what is wrong. And and at least to my understanding and, and the way I saw the world, Catholicism and I guess to a certain extent Orthodox Christianity were the only two that were maintaining that. And and that's. That spoke to me because, and, and I don't, I don't want, and this is, I think, why I love baseball too, because baseball doesn't change for the times. It okay. seems it's this profoundly boring game if you don't know anything about it. And I, I like, do agree with that, I, on, by right? Way. A lot of people agree with I that. I do find it a little boring. Game. Yes, and, and and I'm okay with that because, yeah. like, no, this isn't for everyone, and and neither is Catholicism, neither is Orthodoxy. It's not for everyone, but there's some underlying principles which I don't want to be interfered with, and I don't want to to be changed. And uh, that's just, that spoke to me. And I'm willing to hear other sides. That's fine. But as long yeah. as it's civil discourse. Civil discourse. That's all yeah. I ask for. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Let's get into the juicy steak part of this. Yes. So you, sir, have adopted a carnivore diet. I think you're the only person I know who has done that. Yeah. And uh, what made that happen? Because uh, it's a lot of people, and even me, I think that's, uh, like, when I first saw it, I'm like, that's, pr that's pretty extreme. Man. It is extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think maybe... You're um, a pretty full-throttle guy, there's no doubt. Yeah, it's tough to live with. <laughs> I don't know. I, I texted my, my fiance because she's away for a week, and I, I just I was saying goodnight to her yesterday over text, and I was like, you know what? I love you. And she said, why do you, why do you love me? And I said, because you put up with all this. Okay. Right? And it, it, I'm full-throttle all the time. And this one, I was backed into a corner with the carnivore diet. So... I had kind of a, a adopted veganism for a little while, adopted vegetarianism when I felt really sick on veganism. And I was like, okay, let me go back to, a little bit more to the roots and, and try and figure out what the heck is going on. But I still didn't really want to eat meat and blah, blah, blah. And I got horrendous IBS. My, my insides were a mess. It got to the point where, like I'm going down to Toronto tonight. Mm. If I wanted to do that pre-January, I would have had to take, like right now, I would have had to take two Imodium. Really? Yeah. Whoa. To make sure that should shit literally hit the fan, yeah. that I was going to, you know, I was going to be okay. Yeah. And that started when I was in Europe. Hmm. And I and a lot of people there were eating vegetarian. And we didn't have a lot of money when we were backpacking. Sure. As people tend not to have a lot of money when they're backpacking. Yeah. It was much easier to go to a, a market and get a bushel of peaches and uh, just eat those and, and a loaf of bread and eat those for the day. Yeah. And my system was destroyed, okay? So I, I ruined my gut, um, things were bad. And then I, I happened to hear this, this, I had always known that this gentleman named Sean Baker was around, he was promoting this carni carnivore way of living. Mm -hmm. But then I heard Jordan Peterson on the Joe Rogan podcast mention this carnivore diet thing and how it basically cured his daughter Michaela of all these ailments for arthritis to uh, IBS to anxiety and depression and a, a slew of things that 
one couldn't even imagine how many complications she had. She started eating just steaks and she was cured. Okay, that's a big deal. And that's a huge claim. Yeah, it's pretty out there. Right? You're not going to find any scientific papers written on that. So I said, what the hell? What have I got to lose? Seriously, my, my whole life, and I, and I said that I wasn't going to let my IBS, my autoimmune disorders, uh, dictate my life. And I was serious about that. So I got to find a solution. Doctors said it was all in my head. I went to see naturopaths. They couldn't really figure out what it was either. They're trying to eliminate one thing at a time. That wasn't working. So I just screw it. That night, I heard the, the podcast. That night, I went to the grocery store. I loaded up on meat. And I said, I said to my fiance, again, full throttle. I said to my fiance, tomorrow I'm eating only meat. <laughs> like, you are insane and you're going to kill yourself. Mm. I said, so be it. If it saves me, so be it. That actually reminds me of the uh, Kenny versus Spenny did an episode on who could eat more meat. But anyways, yeah. Really? They did, yeah. That, yeah. I'd kill that <laughs> so well. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I just started doing it. And the first three days, I was like, what am I doing? They got very sick, by the way. But yeah. Uh, Well, yeah. Well, it depends how long you do it for. Because yeah. well, what happens is you get like, they call it keto flu. Okay. Okay. So you you go from this this diet that's high in say sugars and carbohydrates and then all of a sudden you go zilch. I didn't even have coffee. Okay. And I'm like a coffee fiend. Mm. And so I didn't even have coffee and I have no carbohydrates anymore. No sugars, no coffee, just drinking water and steak. Mm. That's it. And I got these insane headaches, migraines. I never had migraines before for the first three days. Couldn't believe it. Felt like crap. After those three days, it was like, I felt like a new man. <laughs> Like I was resurrected. Okay. Okay. All of a sudden, everything started to balance out. I felt better. I didn't feel like I went on a walk and I wouldn't feel like I was worried. I wouldn't be able to find a washroom. Everything inside just, it felt better. It was, it was a weird way to describe it. Mm. What do you mean your insides feel better? I don't know. I don't know how to explain it to you. But what I'm telling you is that something feels different than it did yesterday. Okay. And so I, I continued on this way of eating. And everything kept getting better. My energy levels kept getting better. I started to lean out. I wasn't, I didn't have IBS anymore. I was able to go places without taking any type of medication. My head was clear. Holy crap. What's that all about? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. So all that, I started making videos on it. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure you've seen. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I made this video called uh, carnivore diet saved my life, which I think is like up to 45,000 views. Um, people on the old YouTube on the old YouTube. Yeah. yeah. Um, people said it was hyperbolic. I got some messages and I'm like, no man, I'm serious. It saved my life. What would you call that? You know, like you, you are crippled by this thing that you have. You're letting it dictate basically every aspect of your life, who you hang out with, where you hang out with them, when you hang out with them, what you can eat the day before. Cause what I was, what I was doing was I was fasting for 24 hours before I'd have to go anywhere. Okay. Think about that. Yeah. Okay. I was fasting just to go out and enjoy life. It's a long time. Yeah, it's huge. Because I, I want to make sure that there's nothing in my body mm. that, could, that could upset my stomach. So that was hard. And um, and it did save my life. And, and I've continued on that way of eating. Sure, I had birthday cake. Yesterday I had a burger. Okay. Cheated. Like, it, you Terrible. know, sue me. And I kind of made that t this tongue-in-cheek video when I reached a thousand subscribers last week. On YouTube, I, I made this tongue-in-cheek video that was like a thousand subscriber celebration of the carnivore diet or something like that. And I was eating a jar of peanut butter mm. as I was doing the video. Okay. Kind of poking fun at myself. Like, yeah. I love peanut butter and I still eat it. Okay. I, I don't take myself 
I don't take this too seriously, this way of eating. Sure. People are dogmatic about diets. Yeah. And I think it's, it's the last thing you need to be dogmatic for. Like, do you feel good? Is your body okay? Or are you having regular bowel movements? Are you, are you relatively healthy? Is your blood sugar okay? Yeah. If all those things are okay, then I don't think there's a lot to worry about. And so I was, I was just taking the piss out of myself. And I, I don't ever see myself going back to the other way of eating because I have relapsed. Because I'm curious. It's a strong word, relapse. Yeah. I've, I've relapsed. I've relapsed. You sound like to you're a drug addict. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know, um, I, I don't know what to. I don't know what to make of it. I don't. But I can tell you one thing's for sure that when I when I relapse, that <laughs> I um, it's it's hell. Well, I guess the people do say like sugar can be a drug as well, right? Well, Maybe I, I think there's is. a lot of studies that have come out recently that said it's more addictive than crack. So, figure that one out. No wonder why I was getting sweats and having these crazy nightmares and having having migraines for the first you know little while because I was coming off crack. Uh, there's nothing else to call it, mm. you know. And and and, and so um, yeah, I, I do relapse sometimes intentionally because I, I was very curious as to how my body would respond to it. And the the lethargy is is off the charts. Okay, when I do that, almost instantly I'll wake up in the morning and the bowel movements are back to their old peculiar ways and i and i get very moody extremely moody and and so i I just said screw it i'm I'm just this is it this if it kills me then so be it i think the evidence is starting to mount that it will not and a lot of people are getting their blood tests done and they're realizing which i have in the books um they're realizing that their blood tests are coming back perfectly normal and perfectly healthy well i think sean baker just did that and yeah, I didn't see his. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't ideal. He was like pre-diabetic. He was pre-diabetic. Like yeah, his glucose levels were had a, like exceeded the threshold or whatever. There was a few other issues. I didn't see the whole thing, but I read some of it. I didn't see his. Yeah, I see Michael. I saw Michaela's. Okay. She, she posted it, and uh, by all accounts, there was there was nothing to be concerned yeah. about with her. And uh, and other folks have have come out. It might with, just with differ well. per individual. Of course it does. Yeah. I mean, obviously it does, right? Sure. Like, well, like we're all different heights and sizes and skin tones and the eyes are different. Why wouldn't our diets be, at least to some degree, different? Yeah. Right. And and here's here's another thing I'll say. I still I still I'm a very big fan and eat cheese. Okay. I don't go out and buy Cracker Barrel, but I, I have good cheese. Sure. And I still eat that. I I still eat a lot of fish. I do fancy me an avocado. Mm. So, the foods that I have avoided. I avoid because they they really disrupt my stomach. Mm. Um, I, if if I could and I was healthy eating a salad, I, I would. But I it really does wreck me. So right. that's the reason why I do it. I do if that is not medical advice. Uh, I, I don't recommend it. But I'm, I just put it out there that if you are having troubles with autoimmune disorders, maybe a mood, skin conditions, I've read a lot of testimonies of people doing this. And myself included, and things have gone a lot better. So, fair enough. That's what I'll say. All right. Yeah. Is there anything that worries you about it in the future? Like, do you think something might catch up to you at all, or no? Yeah, like just living in the present. Life catches up to you. You know, I I am uh, very I'm I'm quite introspective, and things and neurotic. So right. things things bother me, mm. and I get very paranoid about things, but. In this particular case, for for whatever reason, I I sleep like a baby at night, knowing that I'm eating this way. Mm. It's not one of the things that bothers me and keeps me up. And I found that I I actually thought a lot about that and, and written about it in my journals 
because I don't quite understand it. But it's not something that worries me. And I think it's because I really do feel like I got a life back. And if it's the thing that kills me, then that's fine. And maybe that's the way I'm going about it. And I, I'm just um, devil may care at this point. All right. Yeah. So carnivore diet. Strong words. Yeah. I think we might end it on that note then. Sounds All good right, to me, man. man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Yeah. And uh, I'll... Um... I can throw your uh, like channel and stuff in the caption and all that. If uh, yeah. yeah, man. Let's do it. Cool. Well, that is the end of this episode. And uh, check out Marxism Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, all that good stuff. Write a review, like, share, subscribe. And in the meantime, we are out of here. See ya.